0: Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Well, here we are, 21 days in, and... uh, I want to ask you a question to get the ball rolling this morning. So what was it that you were hoping for in this 21 days of prayer and fasting? It's a question that's important because as a leadership, we've been hoping for some things and it's directed how it is that we have been praying and what it is that we have been asking for. There's a number of good reasons, perhaps, for fasting, but when it comes to what we've been asking, we've been asking for God to guide us, and in some very specific ways. Uh, One of the things that we're asking God for, have been asking God for, is that he would actually sharpen our senses, so that we would be sensitive to the things that he is up to, the things that he is doing. One of the things that can happen in our lives is that we can get a sense that we are so full that we actually no longer see the things that God is up to in detail. And we want to actually ask the question, when God speaks, are we able, have we positioned ourselves to be able to hear his voice? Are we sensitive? Have we sharpened those senses to listen? Are we coming into alignment with his plans, with his purposes for our life we need to ask those kinds of questions are his priorities actually our priorities as a matter of fact as a church we go through this routine every year because we believe God has given us some plans some vision some hopes and some dreams and every year we need to ask the question legitimately so are we doing the thing that we said God asks us to do this is an opportunity for us to do just that It's been an opportunity also for us, to be quite frank, to be in communion with Jesus. That there's something about asking God, would you allow me to feel what it is that you feel? So that I don't just pass by too quickly, too easily the things that are close to your heart. Would you allow me to think your thoughts? I know your thoughts are higher. Would you lift my eyes higher, God? This has been an opportunity for fellowship and deep communion, and it's been an opportunity to pray uncommon prayers, which really is what we have been doing as we have been researching the prayer of Jabez. Jabez prays an uncommon prayer, doesn't he? It's a prayer that we've been investigating over the course of uh, three weeks together. In fact, here's the prayer itself. It's out of 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10, if you're just joining in on this. But here's what the prayer of Jabez is all about. Jabez called out to the God of Israel. and This is what he says. If only you would bless me, extend my border, let your hand be with me, and keep me from harm, so that I will not experience pain. And... God granted his request. God granted his request. It's an uncommon prayer, and it's a prayer that, quite frankly, we've used to inspire us towards whatever goal God is leading us to. And we've been asking some questions in the process. In fact, here's the first question. As we revisit week one, we were asking this question, how is God asking us to expand our borders? As a church, as families, as leaders in our homes, uh, businesses, whatever realm God has placed us in, we're asking this question, how is God asking us to expand our borders, our influence, our ministry, forest kingdom? It's a strategic question. In fact, last week, if you didn't get on Pastor Chris's message, first thing you should do after today is go and listen to that. But he draws our attention to something that oftentimes is missed as we read the scriptures. And it's that there is a call on us to be great, to do greatness, to get in on God's greatness because he has a good plan. And a lot of times we miss that because we think there's something wrong with pursuing greatness. But here it is, there's Jabez, and he's asking for God to show up and to, in a sense, make him great. And what Pastor Chris bought to bear is this, is that Jesus actually endorses this. His disciples come to him and say, so how do we become great in your kingdom? And Jesus doesn't say, shame on you. In fact, he gives them leverage and he says this, if you want to be great, Learn to be the servant of all. He gives them a way forward towards greatness. How are we asking God to expand our borders, our influence, our ministry for his kingdom? Well, here was week two. We moved into this question as we say yes to God's expansion How are we intentionally creating space in our lives to partner in what it is that he's doing? This is an important question because it's conceivable that we could place ourselves in a prayer posture and we could ask for heaven to give us word about what our next move is and we could believe that that's our next move, but because we haven't done the work of creating space in our life, we never get to where we're going. We actually have to create the space for God to do a work. One of the most haunting passages in all of scripture, because it's deeply personal for me, I think this is something that I often struggle with, the creating space portion of this prayer, is when Jesus is with his disciples, and John testifies to this, and he goes to the pool of Bethesda. And for those of you who, who know the story, there he is with his disciples, in the pool of Bethesda, Is a pool that had miraculous powers. The angel of the Lord, they said, would come and stir the waters. And as the waters would stir, all those who were sick or lame would actually try to get into the water. If you could get into the water when it was stirring, you had a chance, a shot at being healed. It could change your whole life. Well, that was kind of the problem. Not everybody, I think, wanted their life changed. When you change things, you can add responsibility to your plate. You weren't looking for And Jesus draws our attention to this often minimized reality that we all face. There's a man there that's 38 years old, and he's been lame from birth. For 38 years, this has been his life. And Jesus asks him a haunting question. Do you want to get well? Isn't that a strange question to ask somebody that's been lame from birth? It's almost embarrassing, right? I mean, the disciples in that moment must have been thinking, come on, you got something better than that, Jesus. We know you have incredible power. What's interesting is that the man did not recognize the power that was in his presence with Jesus. He didn't seem to see what others had in fact seen for the last 30-something years. And Jesus asked him this question to draw something out. See, the man doesn't respond, yes, I want to be made well. Instead, he comes up with an excuse that really reflects something about the character and nature of his heart. He says, I'd love to, but I can't because I can't get in when it stirs. I have nobody. He wants to play the blame, 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 the blame game. Come on. <laughs> be a victim. What's interesting is you actually have to want to be healed to be healed. You have to know that it's available for you. And you have to seek it if you want to find it. Jesus is gracious and he heals the man. But the question is this, as we say yes to God's expansion, how are we intentionally creating space in our lives to partner with what he's doing? Well, today we want to take it to the last full measure. And we want to ask this question. How will we step out in faith, believing God, will equip us for the things that he has called us to do? I think this is an important question to ask. It's where we want to go today. Maybe you could just reduce it to this. Well, we believe God. Well, we believe that the things he's asked us to do can actually happen. Jabez clearly believed that God could execute his request. And what we know from the story is that God blessed Jabez. So what that means is that our assumption should be that what Jabez prayed for, as dramatic as it was, was something that God, in fact, executed for him. He allowed Jabez, in fact, to expand his borders. He blessed him. Now, the interesting thing about this story is when we read it, because it's so short and sweet, we have the tendency to think that there was almost no effort involved on Jabez's behalf. Like Jabez praised this amazing prayer. And God shows up and he's with them, and Jabez gets blessed, and the rest is history. But Jabez would not have missed the reality of his situation. Jabez was a part of a promise to Israel I want you to go, I don't want you to enter the land, I want you to take possession of the land. And he didn't miss what that meant. That meant that he had to take up the sword, he had to claim ground. He had to break down walls. He had to push back the borders. In fact, his prayer is directly in line with the revealed will of God. What Jabez was asking for is what God had already revealed he should ask for. What Jabez was doing was not not asking for God to fight his battle, not that there's anything wrong with that, but what he was doing was saying, God, I'm in the battle. Would you join me? Would you join me here? In a sense, he's doing exactly what we see Nehemiah doing. As Nehemiah begins his great journey that's recorded for us in the Scriptures, Nehemiah does something similar. His heart is broken over the deterioration of Jerusalem and the broken down walls, and so he goes before the God of heaven, and, and he says this. He says, listen, if, it, if it's your will, would you send me? I mean, in essence, that's Nehemiah in a nutshell, and what's interesting about that is that we're often accustomed to seeing God invite us into ministry, but in Nehemiah's case, and here with Jabez's prayer, his case, they're actually inviting God into ministry. They actually know the heart of God. This isn't any longer a time for them to wonder about what God's will is. It's a time for action. Jabez understood he was really in the fight, and it wouldn't be successful apart from the power of God, See, he was under no illusions. God hadn't promised Jabez a life apart from risk. Which introduces to you and to me a certain paradox, which is in the scriptures that we encounter from time to time. And the paradox is this. God made a promise to Jabez and to anybody entering the land in that age. He says, listen to this. I'm giving you the land. Now take it. Did you catch it? Listen, I'm giving something to you. It's yours. But you have to do something to actually acquire it. You have to join me. There's this paradoxical statement. In one sense, something has been given. In another sense, something must be taken. Jabez is calling on God so that the taking can take place. And I think this is why Ezra mentions him. Ezra was in a fight, and he needed God's help to reclaim ground. Ezra had left all of his cushy situation in Persia, and he was returning to the land of Israel with a remnant, and he was trying to reclaim what had been given to Israel in the beginning. And the reality was, he was looking for inspiration. He believed the people needed inspiration. He records this story intentionally. He was inspired by Jabez, and he wants generations in the future, including you and me, to be inspired by the story of Jabez. The story then serves really as an illustration for us on how we ought to pray in certain occasions. Why? Well, I think over time, something can happen to each one of us. Over time, we can discover that rather than taking ground or getting up for the fight or reclaiming ground that was supposed to belong to us, we can actually settle for lesser things. Have you ever been there? In a book that I was recently exposed to, uh, on leadership called Rooted Leadership. It's a remarkable book in and of itself, but I was particularly taken by the forward to the book. And I want to just read you a section. This is written by author and pastor Mark Buchanan. Uh, he's uh, from Ambrose Seminary. And, and he writes a, a little bit about himself as he looks backwards into his years of ministry. I think he touches on something that is a natural progression in each one of our lives if we're not careful. Listen to how he describes this process of actually settling for lesser things. He says this, When I was a young leader, I spoke like a young leader. I thought like a young leader. I reasoned like a young leader. But when I became a man, I put away younger leaderish things. Sort of a play on the Apostle Paul's words to the Corinthians. He continues, he goes, and then the trouble began. I had nothing much to replace it with. My youthful brashness, my know-it-all-ism, my pluck and hubris and shooting in all directions energy gave way slowly to bewilderment, hesitancy, weariness. While before I ran with where angels feared to tread, Now I plodded and dithered and kept to well-worn paths. I could blame it on getting old, but really, I had fallen into scarcity thinking, believing that I wasn't enough and didn't have enough. Underneath that, though, was a deeper problem, believing that it all depended on me, that the rising and falling of the church was in my hands. I had at root a stunted view of God. My God was too small, too dull, too safe. Wow. That's good. Israel was in a condition where their God had been stunted. Their view of him had decreased over time rather than increasing. And it was showing up in the decisions that they would were making, particularly in the despair that had infected the remnant of Israel. And yet God had a task for them to do, and so Ezra picks this up, and he wants them to move beyond the sedentary, beyond the smooth paths to something great that God had called them into. And the fact of the matter is, as you'll find this as you age. If you don't fight this battle, you will succumb to the sedentary life. It'll even appear like wisdom, and yet it's never where we're supposed to settle. God is always calling us, driving us on to a bigger, more abundant life. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Israel had succumbed, but Ezra was on top of things as a great leader. In fact, it's interesting because if you were to take Ezra's life and the reason for investing in the remnant at this period of time, there are really two reasons that you could come up with that Ezra decides to join the fight. One, he states he really wants to beautify the temple. He believes that the temple was a place of magnificence and God was so magnificent that certainly that should show up in some visual reality around the temple, and so he wants to invest in the building, of the building itself. He wants to beautify it. But the second reason he's there is telling, and it's because there was a moral decline, and Ezra comes to actually draw Israel back to perfect obedience to their God. It's interesting because at this time, Ezra comes because Israel had so quickly forgotten the morality that they had been given by the one who had rescued them. Have you ever been there? It really surfaces a principle. I don't want anybody to miss this. It's critical, it's critical to the text and why Jabez is here, and it's critical for each one of our lives. It's this that there is a thick line between failing to step out in faith and moral decline. In other words, we can believe all that God has for us, but if we don't act on it, it is a recipe for moral bankruptcy. That when God gives us a promise, but we fail to do anything about it, We don't experience fruitfulness and we go backwards. That there's something that must be done. You say, well, where do you find that teaching? Well, if you were in Ezra's mindset, you could probably directly point to David. Here's David and it was time for kings to go out for war. It was springtime and what do we discover David doing? But resting just a little while longer, in his palace. And it was this that was a recipe for disaster, wasn't it? It wasn't as though in the moment when David decides to have an affair with Bathsheba that he all of a sudden lost everything that he believed about God. It wasn't in this moment that he decided that none of the promises were in fact real. No, something else was emerging. A character flaw was emerging. All David had to do was take his foot off the gas a little bit and it opened the door to moral decline. And something that was there and that is in all of us began to overcome the once great king. You've heard about the story. It highlights this principle. There's another place in Scripture that I also think is important to investigate in regards to this principle, and it's the parable of the sower. Jesus tells it, and it's about seed and sowing and planting and fruitfulness. But, but really the parable is not about, it's not about sowing. It's not even about the seed. The, the goal of the story is about the soil, specifically the quality of the soil. There's four soils and the first soil is just rockiness. So when the seed is sown on that soil, there's no fruit, there's no root, there's no belief. Nothing takes place. Satan sort of has a victory. And then there's the fourth soil. The fourth soil is really what Jesus is looking for. It's soil with lots of nutrients. It's nutrient-rich. It can accept the water, and it can produce a lot of fruit. And so there's a lot of fruit when the seed falls on that fourth soil. What's interesting for our argument, though, is really the two middle soils. In those two middle soils, there's some life— and there's some fruitfulness. Really, Jesus is talking to believers there, but they're not as fruitful as they could be or should be. In fact, there's a warning in those two middle soils. This is recorded for us in three of the Gospels. In other words, it was important, but it was also very memorable. When Jesus said this, the disciples leaned in, and we should as well. But in those two soils, you have two things that really emerge when you kind of compile them all together. In the second soil, that soil, well, the seed is sown and there's some immediate life, but it's, it's choked. The life doesn't last. And really, the reason is because of persecution in some form. And we can understand that. One of the reasons why we can believe God for things, but then we never do anything about it, is because if we were to do something about it, we might be persecuted for it. It's an understandable thing to shrink back in those moments. I mean, that requires more than just believing God secretly in the heart. That involves confessing God openly in the public square. And persecution is real. If you think you can just overcome that on your own, you can't. You well need the power of God in that moment. Apparently, Jesus says, not every believer will ask for the power of God. Not every believer will pray like Jabez did in that moment of persecution. And as a result, they have no firm root, and so they fall away. The third soil is really important. I think for most of us, it's where we might enter that story, find ourselves in the parable that Jesus tells. The reason why there are believers in the third soil who don't step out in faith is because of the seduction of the world it's called the the allure of wealth the curse of affluence really the fourth soil is all about our appetites and what they can do to undermine the word of god in our life sometimes we can be so full of ourselves that we don't need the word of god and when that takes place the things that we believe and the promises that are available to us just don't seem to be quite as shiny as they once were. And it's in that moment, something happens of a curse. We don't experience fruitfulness. See, faith doesn't automatically translate into fruitful living. That's why there's people who believe a lot of things, but you look at their lives and abundance is not part of it. You know what translates to fruitfulness? doing. It's in the doing. It's in the taking the faith that you have and then allowing it to flesh itself out in your life that fruitfulness actually occurs. And what Jesus is after is not just your heart. He's after your body. He wants all of yourself to be leveraged for the kingdom. And he sets the example in his own body. What's interesting about that third soil is what steals the fruitfulness away. Mark chapter 4 records this parable and he simply says this, it's the thorns that do the work. Well, I grew up in California and I can tell you there are a lot of thorns there. In reality and metaphorically, yes. Yes. I remember in the field that we had, we had some horses. We moved into this new house and there was an acre and a half just of pasture and it was full of thistle, thorns. They were three feet tall. There wasn't a shred of grass anywhere. We had to deal with that and feed the horses hay so they could survive until we got things flourishing again. Here's what I know about thorns Thorns, we think of in terms of they're painful, but that's not really what Mark is getting at in the parable of the sower. You know what thorns and thistles do to soil, since soil is at the heart of that parable? They rob the soil of the nutrients that give life. As a result, it gets so thick that water can't even penetrate it, and nothing eventually can grow. That's what seeking after the riches of this life will do to your spiritual life. It will rob it of the nutrients that you must have to grow spiritually. That's why affluence often leads to spiritual lethargy. What's so inspiring about Jabez is he rises above the thorns. He has a way of overcoming these things that would inhibit him from stepping into all he knew God had for him. He's simply, according to the text, more honorable. He's more honorable than his brothers. This idea of honor in Hebrew has the idea of carrying weight. There was substance to this man. He had passed some tests. He had earned some distinction through his service. He was respectable. He was dignified and therefore worthy of more honor. The result was that Jabez was blessed. I mean, that's the end of the discussion according to Ezra. His point has been proven. If you want to be blessed, use Jabez's prayer. Not as some sort of mystic ritual or incantation, but the heart of the matter. How is it that he prayed according to the will of God? Do that and you too can be blessed. This idea isn't just an Old Testament concept, it also carries forward in the New Testament. Not just with the word blessed, Jesus talks about it that in the Sermon on the Mount, but also with other language to describe what it is to be blessed as a believer. One of the most profound ones is found in James chapter 1, where it says that those who have endured testing can actually be honored with what's called the crown of life. It's a crown that can be earned by a believer. And it's not just a future thing, although it may be a future thing. It's actually a present crown. It's a present reality. It's that reality that you've experienced when you have endured hardship successfully and you loved God despite the adversity in your life, and on the other side, there was a certain glory about you. And other people could pick up on it. They could see it. James actually put some words on this, but here's the principle that is really showcased in James. The principle is this, is that faith has a goal, and the goal ends up in a crown. Faith has a goal. James' whole point is would you let faith work itself out in your life? Like praying the prayer of Jabez, God, would you expand my borders? What does that look like? Well, help me to create space, and God, I'm believing you for all of it, whatever it is, whatever you say, that's where I'm going to move. My whole life is yours, not just my mind, not just my heart, but my whole body, my whole self. It's all on the line for you, God. It's the kind of prayer that can give you the crown of life. It's connecting faith with your work, And as a result, blessing can take place. In fact, James gives us some specific illustrations of how this works out. He mentions characters in the Old Testament like Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute, and she was definitely on the wrong side, the wrong team, until she heard about the glory of God in the camp of Israel. And she became a believer. And then when the spies came in to spy out the land, she harbored the spies. She ended up being on the right side. And she risked everything, just like Jabez had a risk. God wasn't removing risk. He was praying for something big, and he knew that he was on the line. He was inviting God into the battle. Rahab invited God into the battle. God was in the fight. She knew she wasn't alone. I believe she was praying about this opportunity. The opportunity came, and as a result, she actually is included in the house of Israel and in the line of Messiah. And you know about her today as a result of her faith. And her faith being connected to a goal. Abraham is the other major illustration for James. He says, listen, Abraham was given a promise. But that promise was tested when he was asked to offer Isaac upon the altar. And in that moment, Abraham passes that test and he receives a new name, friend of God. Who heard that name? It wasn't just Abraham and his children that knew that title. It was all the Gentiles and the pagan surrounding nations all said, Abraham is the friend of God. It was the crown of life for having passed the test. He didn't just believe something and then stop there. He moved into it full bore. And as a result, he experienced the salvation and the blessing of God. Now we have Jabez to add to that story for Ezra's account. Which leads me to a question. In this 21 days, for those of you who joined us on this journey, in this 21 days, were you praying for God to expand your borders? What happened? I want to hear that story. And did you create space in your life for God to do that work? And then are you believing that he can resource you so that you can actually accomplish the thing that God has told you To do? It's a legitimate question. I want you to know that this year, as we went through 21 days of prayer and fasting, because it's a routine for us at Church on the Rock, the first of the year we enter into this process, this year we said, what we want to do this year is we want to give everybody a report. Every year we praise the leadership, God leads, and it's great, but we actually want to be on the hook, we want to be accountable. If we believe God is speaking, then we're going to report what it is that God is doing. So this year on February 5th, Sunday, we're actually going to be broadcasting across our campuses and giving a a report from each campus about what God has been revealing over the course of the last 21 days. And some of the things that we talk about We've been thinking about for years, in the last year in particular, but it's through the last 21 days that we realized these are the things that must be done that God is leading us into. And we want you to get in on that. And then we want to celebrate that together on February 7th, right here at this campus. You heard about it already. There will be an all-campus gathering here called The Well. And I want you to come to that, and I want you to attend as we celebrate the things that God has done done in the ways in which he's leading. But it occurs to me in this whole exciting adventure that not everybody feels like they are experiencing the boundary expansion. In fact, it may feel like just the opposite has been going on in your life. I want to encourage you by digging out a little historical nugget out of this story that I think is absolutely profound and amazing and declares the greatness of our God. You see, when Ezra writes, he's writing with a new language that was forged on the anvil of adversity. When Israel left the land of Israel, they had essentially forgotten God. It was one of the reasons they had been kicked out of the land in the first place. And they all understood, they all knew from history that God was the God over Israel. And then they go into 70 years of captivity. And rather than seeing God disappear, they saw God emerge in a brand new way. In fact, they coined a new phrase to describe their God. They called him the God, not just of Israel, but the God of heaven and earth. And they weren't the only ones. But God showed up in that seven years of captivity in such miraculous and profound ways that when Cyrus, the king who had been prophesied about by Jeremiah years before, decided that it was time for Israel to go back and build Jerusalem, Ezra chapter 1 records this, Cyrus says, God, the God of heaven, see he knew him by that expanded name, the God of heaven and earth has made me king over the earth. And I now have been given the commission by the God of heaven to send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple so they can worship their God. And everybody understood that they had received an expanded view of God and a remnant returned. see, you may feel like you're actually in a place of captivity where your borders haven't expanded. They've actually shrunk. I want you to know that's just the perspective Because even in that moment, God wants to redefine himself in your life. It will be the foundation of what is to come next. So we do not despise the start of small things. I want you to know God wants to do something in your life, and it may begin with an expanded view of who he is before he can expand your borders again. Why is this so important? As the, as the worshipers come back upon the stage, as we, as we move into a time of worship, I want to ask that question. Why does this matter? Why is it so important that we pray this way? Well, for one, it was important to them. I mean, we get in on the story because Ezra was inspired by this man, and he wants to inspire us. But why was it so important Because they believed and they clung to a promise. And the promise was that in Jerusalem, there would be a Savior riding in on a donkey. In other words, through the very gates that they built, the temple they were constructing, the walls and the houses, one brick upon another, that was going to be the place where the Messiah, the blessed one, the Savior of the world would come. And they knew because they believed the promise that as they acted out their faith with one brick upon another, that they were somehow participating in that future reign of a Messiah who would not just bless their land, but because he was the God of heaven, he would bless all nations, all people everywhere. You see, you never know what hangs in the balance of the decisions that you make today to be faithful, and to do the work that God has called you to do. They weren't just serving themselves, Hebrews says. They were serving you, the coming generations, as they built, as they believed. The question is, are we going to serve the next generation? Are we going to let the thorns distract us from being the more honorable? You never know what people are looking at or picking up on your life. And then there's this last and final thought. Why is it so important we pray this prayer? Because I believe fellowship with Jesus depends on it. Friendship, in the most intimate way, depends upon us not just believing in Jesus, but obeying Jesus, walking with Jesus. One of the most interesting stories in the New Testament goes something like this. Jesus had fed the crowds, thousands of people, out of just a small, little bitty lunch. And then it happened again. Except the second time in Luke, we get on this other sort of narrative. And it goes something like this. Once again, the crowds needed to be fed. And he looks to his disciples, and his disciples do what many of us do in that moment. They believed Jesus was great. They believed he could perform this miracle. They'd already seen it. But in this moment, they simply shrugged their shoulders and they shrug off the responsibility. They were settling in that moment whether they realized it or not for a small and manageable life. And yet in this moment, Jesus looks at them and I think he looks at you and he looks at me down through the ages and he says this to them. You feed them. You feed them. And he's calling them to take responsibility in that moment. You know the power of God. You know the presence of God. Now, act in accordance with God. Why aren't you asking me to join you in the fight? You know what I can do. You know the power you have available to you. Don't stand there on the sidelines, passive, waiting for me to do all the work. I didn't come here just to show off. I came to pass it off. You feed them. Until we get there, we can't really be friends or know what it's like to be friends with Jesus because friendship is reciprocity in relationship. Jesus invites us into an experience with him, not just to believe something with our heads, but to move into a full sense of his power and unleashing his authority on earth. He gives it to us. The question is, Are we going to be there with Jesus? Jabez was absolutely an inspiration to Ezra. I hope he's an inspiration to you. He's recorded because Ezra believed that Jabez lived a life worth repeating. So I just want to leave you with this question What is it about your life that's worth repeating? It's a challenging question, I admit. It's a question we need to be asking. So as we continue in worship, I'm just going to leave you with that. We don't want this 21 days to end. In a moment, you're going to hear about a resource we've provided that you can have access to to continue this journey with Jesus. We hope you avail yourself of that but I want you to ask this question. Drive it home this week in your quiet moments, in your time with your family. Is there anything about your life that's worth repeating that somebody could say, man, Dad, he was like this. Mom, she does this. I wish I could repeat that in my life. And ask the Lord to help you to live a life worth repeating. May his hand go with you and may his blessing be on you. It's worship. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.